James chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, the text this morning talks about wisdom again. He comes back, circles back around to that particular theme. And so we're going to look at it this morning. I think all of us would admit we don't set out and want to be foolish. Just stop for a minute and think about some of the foolish things you did in your life. Just just for a moment, think. I bet they come pretty quickly, don't they? I was thinking about this as I was sitting there. I thought of one that just popped right out. I remember as a young child... Actually, I was older than that. I was older than than I should have been as foolish as I was. Um, but I had a paper route, and I remember going out and collecting from all of the people who owed me money. And I thought I was rich. And so I subsequently spent all the money that I collected. And I spent the next several, it seemed like years, trying to pay off that debt. Um, that was foolish. And we've all done foolish things. I can think of multiple things, and I'm sure you can too. We don't ever set out to be foolish. We don't want to be foolish. We don't don't want to be known as a fool. In fact, we don't tell all of those things because we don't want to be known as a fool. So it's not wrong to want to be wise. In fact, the Scripture says, who is wise and understanding among you? I mean, he's talking about the desire within us to be wise But then he goes on to tell us what true wisdom is. And that's what this particular section talks about this morning. What is true wisdom? What does it mean to be truly a wise person? It doesn't mean that we won't ever do a foolish thing, I'm sure. But hopefully we will limit them. J.I. Packer uses an illustration, I think, that helps us to see what the wisdom that James is talking about looks like. And he tells about an illustration to help us see that. He talks about if you were in England and you were riding the transit system there, the train transit system there, you might stand at the end of the tracks and you might see all of those trains come in. Uh, Right after we were married, my wife and I had opportunity to go to Europe to see her brother. Her mother wanted to go and needed somebody to go with us, so paid for us to go over to Germany. But before we got to Germany, we spent some time riding some of the transit system. And if you've been in Europe, you realize that that's the best way to travel over and across Europe and across countries is by train. And so you come into these larger cities and there's just mass train systems. But he's talking about in, if you were in England, you would see this kind of a thing where these trains are running. And if you stood at the certain place, you would see how they come in and how the times they come in and the way they come in is varied, the speeds they come in is varied, and you know a little bit about how that operates. But to really understand how it operates, you would go and need to go to the signal box room. 
And if you were in the signal box room of these large transit systems, you would begin to see how they all operate and you would see the lights and you would begin to see why some slow down and why some speed up. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Scott Pudwell, who's an engineer on the railroad, and he tells me that most times when trains are on the same track, obviously one has to pull over, and I ask him about how often those particular pull-offs happen, and they're pretty regular. Pretty often there's a pull-off where one train will pull off the track so another train can go by. You have to be able to do that to go two directions on one track, and so there's many pull-off points. But he said most times you don't ever stop on those pull-off points, that they're so engineered and so operate that you can continue to go, and just as you're coming to go back on the track... The other train is clearing and you're going down the track. And so all of that is done, as it would have been done in Europe, in a signal box room where someone sees the whole picture and certainly computerized now. And all of that takes place. But you'd see all of the lights and you'd see the big picture of why. Why a train slows down, why a train speeds up, why a train stops, why a train gets held up. All of those kinds of things would make much more sense in the signal box room versus standing at the end of the track or at the train station. And he says many times the reasoning for all those movements becomes plain as you see it. And he says many people have that idea when it talks about wisdom. They get that kind of a picture. If I'm really a wise person, it'll be as though God puts me in the signal room and I'll see why it all happens as it plays out, not just how it happens, but why it happens. He said that's a false idea of the wisdom that it's talking about here. In fact, people who think that way oftentimes imagine that if they walk close enough to God, that it'll get better. They'll get, it'll, they'll get wiser in the sense of understanding that big picture idea of why things speed up and why things slow down. Basically, the reason behind why things happen. And God's reasoning behind the way things happen. They'll always be able to analyze the events of life. And in fact, they spend much of their life, people who feel this way, trying to analyze the events of life. Trying to figure out why a certain thing happened and put a spiritual spin on why it happened. A specific spiritual spin on why it happened. He would say that's not the kind of wisdom it's talking about here. The kind of wisdom when he says, who is the wise and understanding among you is a different kind of wisdom. It isn't the wisdom of standing in the signal box and understanding all of the whys of why God does the things the way he does them. But rather, it's more like learning to drive a car. And when you learn to drive a car, you, you are constantly responding to a changing scene. In other words, you drive that automobile and you get better at driving that automobile, the better you're able to adjust to the changing circumstances. And he goes on to say, if you're going to drive well, you must not fret over the highway engineer's reasoning about why there's an S-curve here, the philosophy which produced red, yellow, and green lights, or why the lady in front of you is accelerating while her foot is on the brake, or supposed to be on the brake. In other words, you, you, you don't learn to drive and by by analyzing all of the whys of things, why they were put there, why the engineers put them there. But rather, you learn to drive by just responding to things that come to you. That's how we learn to drive. And he likens that to this kind of wisdom. That the wisdom is talking about here is, is learning how to respond 
to the things that come to you, even though you don't know all of the specific answers of why they come, and responding accordingly and responding properly. In fact, I think there's great danger um, in trying to cut too closely the whys of life, the whys of the reason that a specific thing happened in a specific life at a specific time. Now, there may be times when that's obvious, and we, with, with pretty good certainty, may have an understanding of why. But most times, I don't think we, we do. And certainly, even what understanding we have is not full and not perfect. Um, it's, it's the whole idea that I've talked often to you about. I know the big picture of, of why suffering and brokenness is in the world because of sin. That's, a, that's easy. That's an easy answer. Sin broke the world. But why specific things happen in specific lives at specific times and with specific concentration, I, I just don't go there very often. Much at all anymore. I think part of that is you begin to understand that we just can't know all of that. But we still can be wise. And the scripture still calls us to be wise. But it's a different kind of wisdom that he wants. And this is, this is how he would define it. The wisdom it's talking about here is to live wisely. You must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing life as it is, and then responding with a mind dependent on the wisdom of God. Just like driving. To be a good driver, you have to be aware of your circumstance and of your surroundings and respond accordingly. That's what it is, I think, to have the wisdom of God, to, to be clear, to be clear about life and about people and about the meaning of life and seeing life as it is. Then we have a wisdom that comes to us. Being wise does not mean we understand everything that is going on because of our superior knowledge, but we do the right thing as life comes along. That's key. We don't know everything that's going on because we have some super knowledge. But rather, we do the right thing as life comes along. I think that's what the text is talking about. It's talking about doing more than knowing. The reason I think that is you look at verse 12. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? And it says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of of wisdom, by his good works, by the way he lives his life, we begin to manifest whether we really have this kind of wisdom or not. The way we respond to life and the attitudes we have as we respond to life, the way we deal with life is characteristic of one who is wise. He goes on to contrast good wisdom and bad wisdom, but before we do that, I want to to look at what he says, it really sums it up. He says there in verse 12 again, or verse 13 actually, by his good conduct let him show his good works in the meekness of wisdom, in humility. One of the characteristics of a wise person is meekness or humility. A truly wise person is growing in that aspect of their life. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, if we want to be wise, if we want that kind of understanding, and it, it is manifest in humility, what is it that produces that humility? What is it in life that causes a meekness to come over us, or a humility to be predominantly what controls us in our lives? 
He's going to come back. It's interesting how James just keeps circling around. He's going to come back and said, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So it's important to understand what humility is because it's so significant in our lives and that what produces it. So let me just share four things quickly that I think produce this kind of humility that causes humility to rise up within us, which also produces wisdom. And the fruit of it is wisdom in our lives, the kind of wisdom that knows how to respond to life, knows how we ought to live in the circumstances of life that we find ourselves, knows how to respond. Just like a driver who's going down the road instinctively responds, humility, as it as it grows within us and what produces it within us, causes us to instinctively, instinctively to act in wise ways. And that's really, I think, what sanctification, what growth and godliness is all about. So four things. First one is I think it flows from reverence. I think in order to be a truly humble person or one who uh, in meekness of wisdom, it says here in the scripture, is we have to, first of all, have a sense of reverence for God in our lives. It, it really is foundational. The scripture says the fear of the Lord what reverence is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts there when we begin to reverence God. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It also says it again in Psalm 111 and verse 10, but then it goes on to say after the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, it adds this, those who practice it have good understanding. Those who practice it have good understanding. Those who practice it grow in wisdom. And act wisely in their lives. It's all about, I think, seeing God for who he truly is. Which then allows us to see us for who we really are. There's nothing more valuable in our lives to get those two things in place. I have to admit to you, it was a number of years after I came to Christ. A number of years after I'd already been in ministry in this pulpit at Richland, that I really began to have those two things come together for me in my life. I remember being in a bookstore in North Platte where I grew up, and I remember a title that caught my eye, The Holiness of God, and so I picked it up and took it home. I began to read it, and for some reason it didn't, didn't really click or I wasn't the right timing, but I set it back down. And then a year or so later, in reference to somebody recommending it, I picked it up again. And, and probably that was the most significant thing in my life that changed the course of my ministry. When I began to see God for who he was, when I really began to see the holiness of God, when I really began to reverence God in that respect, it, it began to put me in my proper place because up until that time, I've, I've told you this before, but up until that time in my life, I had struggled with, with actually assurance that, that God accepted me, um, that, that I really was his child. I, I knew it in my head, but functionally, I wasn't living out of that. And subtly what I was doing is I was trying in little ways and sometimes big ways to cause him to like me more, to cause him to somehow notice me more and, and uh, extend his grace to me more. 
And, and that was a horrible time in my life. If, if you've been in a stage in your life where you have been trying to operate in such a way that you could merit God's favor, that's not a fun place to be. And what actually happened when I began to see who God was, it undid me. Remember in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah says, Woe is me. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. And later he says, Woe is me. He saw the holiness of God and it undid him. And what it literally did to me is it undid me to the point as I saw really who God was to the point where I came to the conclusion finally, I can't. I can't merit this. Though I don't, I don't have to. Functionally, I was trying to. I, I came to the place where when I saw who God was, I saw who I was. And I only had one choice. And that was to run to his mercy. And to let God show me his mercy fully. And to rest in his mercy. That's why as we sing songs this morning about Christ taking the curse of God from me. Those are powerful things in my life because that's my only hope. My only hope is not that I somehow can do something that will remove that curse from me, but that Christ took it, that he bore it. It's why the gospel is so precious and what the gospel says to us. And you don't really see the preciousness of the gospel until you really see who God is. My fear in our day and age is is the weightiness of God. The weightiness of God is being minimized in many places. This idea of God being holy and other than we are. We don't like that, so we try to somehow tame him and make him more user-friendly, if you will. And I think we do great detriment to our soul, detriment to the gospel, to the preciousness of the gospel. I believe in order to really understand and to truly be wise, we have to first of all get God in the right place. And we need to not, um, not minimize his weightiness, but maximize it. He is a weighty God. He is a God above all gods. And he is absolutely holy. And once we see that, we have the beginning of wisdom because we begin to see who we are. We begin to see how desperately, how desperately we need Christ and his work. There's this phrase that I've shared before, but this is what happened to me. The sting of my sin drove me to the Savior. That's my prayer, that, that you won't minimize your sin, but you will see it for what it is. And you won't minimize who God is. You won't bring him down so that you can measure up. Or you won't minimize your um, lack of performance somehow. But you'll just get both of those. You'll see who he is and you'll see your lack of performance and you'll see there's only one place to run. And that's to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But secondly then, not only that, but conversion. We need, first of all, to have a reverence for God, which leads to conversion. We must be converted. We must pass from death to life in Christ if we're really going to be wise. You're not going to understand the wisdom that's talked about here. You're not going to understand life as it should be lived unless that 
has happened in your life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us our state, describes who we are. Listen to what it says quickly this morning in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. This is our state outside of Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now in, at work in the sons of disobedience, among we all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all were there. Post-conversion, excuse me, pre-conversion, before we've come to Christ, if you, if you in fact have been converted, you've passed from life to death, at one point, in that state, you could not know the kind of wisdom that James was talking about. You couldn't because you, you were following one who didn't lead you there. You were following one, as the scripture a little later we'll look at says, was giving you wisdom from below, not from above. We followed the prince of the power of the air. All of us had him at work in us who were sons of disobedience. So we must... We must be in Christ. We must have come to faith in Christ in order for us to experience this kind of wisdom. Let me, let me read another portion of scripture to you this morning that, again, is part of that portion I read in the prayer time previous to what I read. But it just came alive to me again this week. This idea of being in Christ. That's what it means to be converted. We're in Christ. In fact, those who are baptized tonight are making profession that they are now in Christ and all that he has done has been done for them and accomplished for them. But listen to how Paul puts it in, in Romans chapter 16. Oftentimes, when we read scripture, the, the first part of, of a book and the last part of a book, we just kind of skim over. And we don't really read what's there. But chapter 16 is the last particular chapter of Romans. Paul is bringing Romans to an end, which Lord willing, in the next few weeks, we're going to begin to dive into. But in Romans chapter 16, he says these things. He's just talking about expressing greetings. And so the reason you kind of pass over this is because you can't really pronounce all the names. And you just kind of quickly read over these greetings as though it's kind of added on. To, to what Paul has said, and it's not all that significant, but I think it is. Look what it says in verse 3 of chapter 16. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Read also the church in their house. And then he goes on to says, say, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Christ or first convert to Christ in Asia. Paul says, greet the very first person who passed from death to life in Asia, the whole continent. He he describes him right there. And then he goes on and says, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. What's he saying there? In Christ again? That idea of being in Christ, being converted to Christ, all that Christ has done, they have possession of that. It's been done for them. But in Christ before me, what's he saying? 
They were a Christian before I was. They had passed from to life in Christ before I did. He's giving a history lesson. He's talking about people who they met in their home. He's talking about the very first convert. And he's talking about those who were converted even before. But all of that goes back to say the issue and the importance of conversion. That we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. And we know that. We know that now we have a different master, a different one that we're following. Um, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says this, Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the low and the despised of this world to shame the wise. And then he goes on and say, And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom. Of God. In Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ, He becomes wisdom to us and for us. So you must be converted. You you must, first of all, have a sense of reverence that shows who He is and who you are. And then as you run to Christ, as you run to Him and cling to Him, God brings you to life. And you're in Christ. And now you have the wisdom that comes from him. And thirdly, the third thing that I think produces humility, certainly those two do. When you see who God is and you see who you are, when you begin to realize the mercy of God, that you can run to him and cling to his work. But thirdly, then the scriptures begin to produce it in. The scriptures begin to rise up within us. Here's where we come to Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ... Dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It produces humility in us as we let the word wash over us. A few weeks ago, I asked you the question, what don't you like to lose? Remember? We don't like to lose our keys. We don't like to lose our wallet. Now, we don't like to use our cell phone. That's probably number one, cell phone. If you, that's the first thing you realize you don't have. Maybe many of you. But do we feel the same way about our Bibles? That's the question I ask. Have you been asking yourself that? Feel the same way about your Bible when you don't know where it's at? Do you go into a panic when you don't know where it's at? We should, I think. I think it should be in that category. It should be right there in the top list of things we don't want to lose. We don't want to be without. We want to know where it's at at all times. And again, you have a bit of an out. We don't carry them like we used to. I'm old-fashioned, I admit it. But I do think there's a danger in this electronic age that we have it with us but it's not as precious as it once was. If, if, if it's electronic and it's precious to you, good. But really ask yourself the question, is it or is it just convenience? Is it really precious? Is his word precious to us? Is it? Does it dwell richly in us? It keeps us from being deceived. The scriptures keep us from being deceived. As we go along, there's lots in this life that seems like it's wisdom. 
that it's wise, that it's prudent. But the Bible helps us to make sure of that. It, it corrects us. It tells us the truth about life. The Bible tells us the truth about life. To live wisely, one said, you must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing life as it is and responding with a mind dependent on God. The Bible helps us to see life as it is. God help us. An example of that. Example of how it does that. There are multitudes of examples that you can use, but in my ministry over the 40 years that I've been in ministry, one of the things that I have witnessed when I've dealt with people is in the area of the scripture that says, be not unequally yoked. Scripture talks about not being unequally yoked. That can have lots of application. You have application of business. You can be unequally yoked in business. You can be in a situation where you're in a business, but you're not you're not yoked well. In fact, decisions can be made and you can't control them. You can't do always the right thing because you don't have the control to do the right thing. You're, you're yoked in a situation where you're compromised just because of that nature. I think it has application there. I think we need to be careful there of how we get yoked in business situations. But where I more, more predominantly see it happening is in young people's lives as they begin to get older and they begin to look for mates. They begin to possibly pray about what God has for them. And they begin to search the field. I think it has great application there. Be not inimically yoked. And what I have seen, tragically seen happen many times is that two people are looking and they find each other and a person maybe who is a believer who's had a reverence for God, who's, who's been converted, who has let the scriptures begin to affect their lives. But, but this scripture doesn't influence them as it ought. And what begins to happen is they meet somebody and they begin to, 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 to size things up. They begin to say, is this the right person? Are we compatible? Does it work? Do we get along? Do we have fun together? All of those things. And, and they can subtly Here's where I think we have to be careful. There, there's a wisdom that can come that seems prudent and seems right. It doesn't seem as though it, it's coming from a source that would want to undermine us. It seems right and prudent. But they're not a believer. They aren't like-minded in faith. And so the scripture would say, don't be unequally yoked. All things can get checked off. You can check off 20 things, but, but is the most important thing able to be checked off? The, the thing that is at the core of who you are, if you're in Christ, and they're not. At the most important core level of our being, are we willing to sacrifice that? And the danger is if we're not getting the wisdom that it talks about in James, if we're not letting the scriptures inform us, and letting them be the one that really tells us whether it's prudent and good and wise, we can get in trouble. And lots of heartache can flow out of that. God can redeem that at times, but oftentimes that doesn't happen and there's great heartache. So those three, reverence, conversion, 
Scripture. Finally, prayer. We've already talked about that. We're not going to go back over that. But it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, what's it say in James? Let him ask God. There's a place to pray. There's a place that that comes to us, and we should pray. But let all of those things work together. Who is wise among you? Who is wise among you? We're not going to go into all of it today, but let me just quickly here, as we come to a close, read the contrast. Here's what the scripture says. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The opposite of humility is what it's talking about. As God produces humility in us, that's where wisdom flows from. A humility from reverence, conversion, scripture, and prayer. The wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown by it. We're going to circle right back to what Packer talked about. True wisdom is not so much what you know, although it's not irregardless of what you know but it's how you live. True wisdom is manifest in how we live in a life of righteousness, in a life portraying righteousness, a life that makes its decisions based on righteousness and right things. Question again, and I leave it with you as we sing, who is wise among us? Let him be meek and humble and hear from God. Let's stand and sing. (coughs) You are the source of new life. The giver of every good thing Withholding nothing You lavish your kindness on me You emptied yourself, became poor Humbled and poured out to death Now highly exalted above all Your name alone can save the life, Jesus, the only way, the only truth, you are my life, Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, Jesus, the 
upon his word. Lord, give us that kind of wisdom. May we be people who, by our conduct, will be seen as wise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace.